welcome to Peace and Resist. Welcome to Peace and Resist, a weekly activism podcast. With your host today, it's me, Kedro. I have an interview with John Feel, 9-11 activist, first responder, and organizer, but he's a whole lot more than that. There you go. Well, it's, uh, it's perfect that we're talking here then. All right, John, thank you for joining me. You have your coffee like me. We're ready to go. You founded the Feel Good Foundation in 2006. This organization supports first responders in a variety of ways. No Responders Left Behind is on the homepage of your website. What does the foundation have ongoing or upcoming uh, that you're proud of, or or what are you looking forward to? Yeah, wow. You start off uh, quick with good questions. Thanks. One, thank you for having me. And um, let me take you back. The Feel Good Foundation is me. It's an extension of me. Um, yeah. It's my personality. It was created. It was a reaction to the lack of action by our state, federal, local governments. Um, no more, no less. Uh, when I started this, I knew I had to surround myself with people smarter than me because <laughs> yeah, uh, the only thing I bring to the table is the ability to not accept no for an answer mm. when people are suffering. You know, the true spirit of the human being to feel when somebody else is sad or happy, then you have happy for them or you're sad for them. I saw so much pain and suffering and I felt so much literally dealing with my own physical injury and my own uh, psychological post-traumatic issues. Mm -hmm. I felt that tenfold. And um, there's an old saying, there's always somebody worse off than you. I found out the hard way that boo-hoo, poor me, I got hurt. But there are so many people that are sick and dying or who have died. And um, My mother raised me never to complain, and I try not to, but she also raised me to give my shirt off my back to a stranger, and um, I literally live by my mother's words, so. I get that, and those are great lessons. When when I started the foundation, we were supposed to put food on the table, keep the utilities on, put gas in the car so somebody can get to a chemotherapy appointment, and then we evolved. It should have never been at that level, and we're going to talk about it. Yeah, sure. Um, You know, we were a Band-Aid for a machine gun wound, Mm. but it turned into uh, we wear dual hats now where we have to advocate. We still have to show the empathy and philanthropy and 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 we have to help pass legislation. And, you know, 20 years ago and we're coming up on the 20 year anniversary, I never thought I'd be doing this, nor did I want to. I'd rather have the other half of my foot back working, (laughs) enjoying life. And don't get me wrong. I enjoy life. I enjoy what I do. Because I haven't had a vacation since nine before 9-11. I enjoy helping people. And if that sounds perverted or twisted, it, it's not like I get off on helping people. I yeah. enjoy helping people knowing that if I can help somebody, anybody can help somebody. Because I have exactly. literally I have literally written the idiot's guidebook on how to help people. <laughs> limited resources it's an incredible pay it forward mentality is what it is giving of yourself doesn't have to mean write a check for a million dollars giving of yourself you know giving of yourself means hold the door open for somebody say hello to somebody put a smile on their face go volunteer an hour out of your day on the weekend and feed the home do something i share that so much and that spark can be what creates the fire of change and it really sounds like this path chose you by what you're talking about. Yeah. I'm grateful that you walked it because you've helped 
countless people in your time. In between everything that I do, and they all interact one way or another, I think at the end of the day, it's about challenging people's humanity. Yeah. Where I could put aside my political differences. You know, listen, my politics and my religion are the same. Um, just don't be an asshole. <laughs> When we make things simple and we realize we have more in common than we don't have in common, it really gets that easy where I see so much hate. You know, 90% of the people I help, I probably don't agree with their politics or their religion or their views in life, but I love humanity. I crave humanity. Yep. I People always ask me, what's the first? It's humanity. Everything's humanity. I might be naive or gullible, yeah, no. but I, I believe it's coming back. No, you're not. You're not because of what you've done. And first, that concept of humanity is huge. Benevolence, kindness. Joe Biden's campaign, not to get overly political here, but it was bring kindness back was one of his concepts, you know? And so I really agree with your mindset of pay it forward. Yeah, a lot of people don't know this. I know yeah. Joe Biden. I've met Joe several times. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I sat, I, sat, <laughs> I sat on Joe Biden's cancer moonshot task force. What? Um, That's incredible. Yeah. You know, yeah. and again, I find myself in places where I don't belong. <laughs> you do. Um, you do. Don't sell yourself short, John. Well, you know, listen, you know, do you mind me, if I read something? I want to read something to summarize here from John Stewart, comedian, Daily Show and beyond. Um, he passed the torch to Trevor Noah beautifully. I have the greatest admiration for John Feel. He made all of this his life's work. If he hadn't done what he did for over 18 years, almost 20 years now, and gone to Washington, D.C., and knocked down so many doors to those who wouldn't listen, it would have not have gotten done. So don't sell yourself short. I, I love your humility. That speaks to your upbringing, what you talked about with uh, what your mom taught you and what you carry. But you are a big player here. And uh, and I'm going to make sure everyone knows who does know. Well, <laughs> you know, let's go back. Um, one, I love John. He's a dear friend. Yeah. Um, and I didn't have to pay him for him to say that. <laughs> I didn't need 9-11 to know right from wrong. I needed everybody to know how my mother raised me. Mm -hmm. My mother was my mother, my father, my best friend. She was everything. And when she passed away, part of me died with her. But she raised me. I'm the youngest of five children. Mm. And she raised me and protected me from a lot of things. She trained me. I she was gave you that project. toughness. I was her project. And she yeah. trained me mentally and physically to protect others mm. and to fight for others. And I've been doing that way before 9-11 and since 9-11. And it's not just 9-11. Everybody sees everything I've done for the 9-11 community. But John and I are working with the veteran community now. Yep. You know, behind closed doors and off camera, I'm working with abused uh, single women with children. That's um, incredible. I have a yeah. lot of passions that I, I like to share with that don't get the attention that I don't want to take away from those things because I'm a lightning rod or, you know, there's a camera around. And exactly. You don't want do. it to be about John Feel. Keep it on the issue. That's admirable and noble. And I know my responsibility in the 9-11 community. You know, when I started this, it wasn't sexy. Nobody believed in it. Nobody wanted to get involved. Nobody wanted to touch it. Yeah. I was demonized. I was called mm -hmm. so many names. I was a loose cannon. I was a pistol. I was crazy. And I wore blinders. We were a little engine that did. And now with a big engine that uh, could. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we have done a lot. And I think our body of work speaks for itself. But we have so many more things we want to do. You know, we're coming up on the 20 year anniversary. Exactly. And last year, the anniversary of the 19 year, uh, you know, listen, 19 year anniversary I, hey, how long have you been married? 19 years. Nobody cares. Right. And the 19 year anniversary anyway, took a backseat to the pandemic and everything that was happening in D.C. Yeah. 
But now we're coming up on the 20 year anniversary, which is the most notable number after a tragic event or any event, really. Right, it's and, symbolically um, a big deal. No matter what's happening this year, pandemic, which I think will be about 80% under control by then. Yep. But I think nothing is going to stop the 9-11 20 year anniversary from grabbing hold of the media's attention for 24, 48, 72 hours, where yeah. they finally pay respect to those who died that day. Mm. those who have gotten sick and died since then, because yeah. that story is just not told enough. Exactly. And we're going to talk about a few. We're going to mention a few and any that you want to mention as we go along, I welcome them. And there's a story you mentioned with your parallel to you were driven, you, you're on this path and people are telling you, what are you doing? As you said, you're crazy, whatever. And there were others who I'm going to mention the man who saw it coming from 9-11, who saved, who was accredited with saving 2,700 people uh, potentially or, or Exactly. Not potentially. He did. Um, so let's uh, move forward here. Let's talk about the compensation fund. Let's get into this a little bit. Yeah. The September 11th Victims Compensation Fund should have had unanimous support for permanence from the start, period. As of June 2019, you said of 9-11 survivors and first responders, we lose somebody every 2.7 days. And that was an average over time then before COVID. What or who do you recall most from the hearings or the legislative process that you were active in? Well, let's go back in time. I was denied the first VCF. The very first Victims' Compensation Fund ran from September of 2001 until uh, the middle of 2002. It was run by Ken Feinberg. There's Mm -hmm. actually a movie coming out on that uh, on Netflix with Michael Caton, who plays Ken Feinberg. That's going to get good attention. And if I'm in it and they didn't tell me about it, I'll go nuts because, um, you know, Ken Feinberg denied me my uh, VCF claim. Mm. And it was a technicality. I was hurt at 124 hours, and I'm the worst injury at ground zero during the 10-month cleanup. Not a title that I'm proud of, mm. but because I, I was hurt that. at the ni- because I was hurt after 96 hours, mm-hmm. um, I was denied. And at that time, it was devastating. But I'm kind of glad it didn't happen because it's one of the reasons why I do what I do and how the field gets started. The chip on my shoulder after that just got that much bigger. Yeah. Um, but over the years, the opposition, I used to think it was ideologies. It's really ideologies. It's a playbook that either side in D.C. uses when they want to oppose legislation. Mm-hmm. I learned the hard way. Nobody gave me a book to learn how the sausage is made in D.C. And I now cannot be outthought or, or intimidated by an elected official who thinks that I don't know how this game is played. In one interview, you had said, you know, it's not about making friends with these people. They don't need to like me. You say things like, this is our house. We should be able to walk up there and request the things that we need. And yeah. you visited, as of 2019, you visited Congress, I think it was uh, June 2019, at the heart of trying to push this permanent legislation. You had visited 278 times, at least. Yeah. It's over 300 times now. There you um, go. You know what burns me? I, I just want to mm-hmm. get off subject for a second. Yeah. While I will never back down from a fight and enjoy a good fight, when I say fight, I mean, you know, the fight to get legislation passed. I appreciate my opponents and my foes, and I love my allies. Mm -hmm. But those that I brought to D.C. with me, those who were sick and dying, who went to D.C. and some of them have died, they deserve all the credit. But after 15, 16 years of going to D.C., and then those three or four times that we saw our work come to fruition and go to the chamber for a vote, Mm -hmm. uh, that was an honor. It was an honor to walk the halls of Congress, bleed and sweat and cry, get in our cars and drive eight hours back, 
and then finally get a chance to see our work come to fruition. And then to see on January 6th of this year, the insurrection, how they desecrated the Capitol. Mm-hmm. I sat there. I walked those halls. And when I said I was going to storm the Capitol or I was going to smack a congressman in the mouth, it wasn't figurative. It was literal. And we were proof. 9-11 responders, who people call us heroes, which we're not. We're just yeah. everyday people. We busted our asses to help tens of thousands of people across the country. And for them to just literally destroy the very fabric of what this country is built on was the most repulsive thing I've ever seen. And I don't say that lightly. And I don't care who I piss off who heard this because that hurt. That's false patriotism. Waving a flag and saying you love America and then beating a cop with it does not make you a patriot. It makes you a brainwashed fool. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. I don't want to uh, dilute it. I just want to say thanks. The way D.C. is set up, it's so fragile down in D.C., the infrastructure, that it's making it difficult for us to get back in the halls of Congress and, and pass new legislation for veterans who are affected from the burn pits. Right. So, you know. Now there's I'm more all, hurdles. Yeah. I'm doubly angry now because it's, you know, we got a piece of legislation that we're going to introduce soon. Mm. And um, I'm tired of doing Zoom meetings with congressional and senatorial offices where we can be doing these in physical so they could see these men and women that I bring to D.C. that are sick and dying. The emotion's um, different there. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, listen, every time I go to D.C. and I come home, I got to take my sword and put it away and pick up a rake and farm. Yeah. And I got to get ready and go back to the battlefield and, and pick up my sword and bring the guys with me. And uh, and again, I say that figuratively. You're a cultivator. You speak in strong language, but what you're doing is cultivating, you're launching, you're a launch pad for people. Start- well, you know, so many Americans, so many Americans across this country, they believe in an issue and they get they get discouraged really quick when they see they can't get anywhere or they don't have the resources or the time. And exactly. then that issue, that issue dies with them. And um, hopefully somebody else will pick it up. But they have to have the mindset that Congress and the Senate and the White House, they work for us. They work for us. Once you yep. got that past your frontal lobe, <laughs> everything else is, is, is cake. Yep. It's cake. Yeah. You said they're doubling what it takes to get legislation passed with everything that happened. So let's quadruple the support for this upcoming bill. Yeah, absolutely. I want to talk. You said that you were excluded from the first round of compensation for 9-11. You did not meet the requirements for that. And so what it is, the original one ran from 2001 to 2004, and that covered uh, people who suffered physical harm, but like you said, within a certain window. And families uh, who were killed by terrorism in 2001 were also compensated there. Yeah, but let me let me play devil's advocate because here was my argument. Mm. If you got sick after 96 hours, you got compensated. Mm. So if you got hurt after 96 hours, why couldn't you be compensated? And, you know, mm. I ran into Ken Feinberg years later and um, we were in DC and he's coming down the hall and he saw me and he's like, John, you know, I'm really sorry. I um, I dropped the ball on your case. It's something I got to live with. And I said, it's all good, sir. And again, it was a combination of things that gave birth to John Field, other than my mother. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, my mother, you know, she passed away in 2006 and it was really just starting. You know, this is a funny story. It's not a funny story, but when I started the Feel Good Foundation, and I'm going to show you my IQ here. Mm-hmm. I was filling out the paperwork for the foundation. And um, I go down to the uh, Yapping office to fill out some paperwork. There's an old lady there, probably about 75, 80 years old, black lady, just the sweetest, nicest lady. But she was a straight shooter. And I filled okay. out all the paper, but I didn't fill out the name of the foundation. And I handed her the paper. And she's like, uh-huh, uh, no, honey, this isn't done. <laughs> yep. 
And I, I'm saying, well, you know, I really, I'm still thinking about a name. And she's like, well, you got, you can't, you can't submit this. You don't have a name. I said, yeah, but it, you know, it's a 9-11 organization and everybody, <laughs> all the other 9-11 organizations, they have 9-11 in it or something. When people think of 9-11, they think of the worst. And I don't want to be negative. I want to be about solutions and problem solving. Right. Not so much the terrorism, more about the first responders. And she goes, baby, what's your last name? I said, feel. Mm. And she goes, come here. Come closer. Come, come here. And she smacks me in the side of the head with a little tap. <laughs> yeah. And she goes, you're the Feel Good Foundation. You didn't even know it. <laughs> and I said, oh, my God. And I go, but can I spell it F-E-A-L instead of F-E-E-L? Yeah. She goes, she goes baby, you're the president. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> that's so good. And that's that's how it started. And um, Yeah. And I wish I could have went back and thanked her because, you you know, yeah. um, that's, you know, that just shows you that I don't always think for myself. How's it? That? <laughs> hey, but you- really, but really it's that spark, her spark created yeah. a for you. That, that slap was the spark, huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, you know, I think any woman who resembles my mother um, is in that age of my mother before she passed. I'm always going to stop and listen and take advice from. And- no joke. I'm similar because I was raised by a single mom. I, I have a very similar sentimentality about that. So I think uh, my my natural aura of me is attracted to that strong woman who raised five kids on her own. So, mm. you know, and over the last 15 years, it's usually women that I've tend to work closely with. And don't get me wrong, the Feel Good Foundation board is made up mostly of men. Mm-hmm. The 9-11 Responders Park is made up mostly of men. I now have a female president. Awesome. Um, but it's women who I connect with better because I truly believe that women lead better than men. And oh, yeah. um, that's just my opinion. And anybody can argue with me and we can have a conversation about it. But I just think women can multitask better than men. And I think <laughs> they can compartmentalize better than men and they can get things done. And I think if there were more women in the Senate, in the Congress, and hopefully a woman president one day, mm-hmm. we're about to see some wild shit where things get done. And right. that, you know, listen, if your room was a mess and your mom walks in, that room got clean. <laughs> there you if, go. If your dad walked in that room, he wouldn't even yep. have said a word. Exactly. It looked normal. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, to your point real quick, when more women are in power in governments and uh, specifically democracies, there's a higher level of trust in government with the people. There are fewer uh, conflicts. Typically, it just overwhelmingly it creates like a better quality of life for everybody like you're talking about. So, yeah, um, uh, you know what? And if a woman shows emotions and cries, my, you know what? Hey, that's called empathy. Yeah. You know, before 9-11, my mindset was I was Bo Jackson, I was John Wayne, and I was Fonzie, all wrapped up in one and wasn't an option. And yeah. I thought I was that cool. I thought I was the world's best weekend athlete. And now my injury humbles me. Mm. Commercial will make me cry. And I'm all right with that. Yeah. Well, real quick, I was going to mention this off the recording. I actually did tear up uh, while researching this this morning. I teared up uh, earlier uh, this month, actually, when I was researching in full. You know, it's okay to, you know, to show that. It's not a weakness. I think that's a true sign of leadership. There you go. Empathy is is critical. You nailed it. Real quick, with the during the hearings, the empty chairs of Congress members was disturbingly frequent during those 2019 sessions. John Stewart called it a callous indifference, but I really respect you, Luis Alvarez, John Stewart, everyone who went showed up 
and and got it done for for the first responders and everyone involved. So that's just incredible what y'all did. Yeah, let me recap 2019 for you. The bill was introduced at around the end of February, beginning of March of 2019. But here's what nobody knows. Mm. Me and my team of about 12 guys since October of 2018, November, December, January, February, we were already in D.C. under the radar. No media, no nothing. We were just gathering up uh, yes votes and co-sponsors. Smart. Didn't want yeah. to repeat the 2010. Didn't want to repeat a 2015. Wanted to get this over with. Mm -hmm. And we knew we were racing the clock because the special master already said the VCF was going to run out, run out of money. Right. By about February, they had cut 70% of the allowance right. of February 2019. So when the bill was introduced that day, we already had like 40, 50 co-sponsors in the, in the Senate, over 100 in the House. And we were well on our way. But there were powers that be that wanted us to wait to the end of the year to negotiate and get a better bill and be attached to a larger vehicle. 2010 was the uh, a unanimous consent vote. And 2015, we got attached to the omnibus, which is the president's budget. We wanted a straight up and down vote on the floor. We wanted to go out on our terms. Mm -hmm. And you know, it was tattooed on my arm. It was our story to tell. Huh. And we wanted awesome. our story to be told. And yeah. we wanted to watch that vote. And we, we got it. So when May came around, we knew we had a chance of getting this done. And then we started putting people together to testify in front of the committee. And um, I got to be part of that process where, you know, we got to handpick these people after Mm. Maloney and King spoke and then the special master and then a doctor. Yeah. Lieutenant Michael O'Connell, FDNY, one of my team leaders spoke. Louis Alvarez spoke, who died 18 days later. Yeah, he did. Getting Louis from Long Island to D.C. added 12 years to my life. And then John spoke. Yeah. So he, I had a game plan about a week or two before the hearing. I said, John, we can get this done before they go on summer recess August 1st. And John's like, let's do it. And then 80% of the uh, people behind closed doors didn't want it. And then I went to uh, Senator Gillibrand's office and Gillibrand and I have a great relationship. And they said, do what you got to do. Um, and, you know, after working with them for over a decade, they had faith in us. Awesome. So the object was to get John to testify, everybody else testify. And they did great, but, you know, come on, it's John Stewart, right? Yeah, he, he just carries that national presence that... And then get a meeting with Mitch McConnell, and... Um, there you it, go. I saw a photo of Mitch McConnell walking by him, and yeah. John kind of smiling, just like got him. We had to have the stars in line, and we had to have the perfect storm for everything to line up the way the game plan was to work. Yeah. So about a week before the hearing, uh, John uh, calls me, and he reads me his testimony. And I said, dude, that's good. You use words I never even heard of. Um, <laughs> yeah. But... Why would you read from anything? You're John Stewart. You're the mm. best sit-down satire comedian ever. Mm. Um, you can articulate anything to the common American across this country, and they get glued to it. He goes, yeah, but I don't want to fail the guys. I want to be professional. I go, John, you never failed anybody. Stop. Come on, man. Yeah. So the whole week, he's making tweaks, and he's emailing me. He's God, he's feeling the pressure, yeah. And we're texting, and I was like, dude, do what you want. You know what? You're John. You're gonna. You're not gonna listen. You know. So that Thursday, <laughs> he'll go his own way. Yeah. The day before the hearing, Ray Pfeiffer, who passed away in May of 2017, yeah, uh, they were doing a golf outing for him, and we were all supposed to be there, but we were in D.C. So Ray's brother auctioned off Ray's coat, his fire, uh, his bunker gear, and from D.C. I outbid everybody seven thousand dollars to win that coat. There you go. And then I paid somebody a thousand dollars to drive it down to DC before John Stewart got there. Uh -huh. So yeah. that coat arrived before John. And then I Incredible. had about 40, I had about forty-two guys with me, and I had them all sign it, say whatever you want to John, leave a message for John. So uh -huh. 
that morning, I was waiting outside for John on the side of the Longworth building, and all my guys were inside. And John shows up, and we hug, we're bullshitting. And I give John a letter, yeah. and it's on my letterhead. And I probably used my letterhead for about 10 times in 15 years. <laughs> Yeah. And it said, Dear John, um, in my 53 years on this planet, this is my first Dear John letter ever. Mm. And I love and I miss my mother dearly. And I love and I miss Ray dearly. Do not ever make me miss you because I love you dearly. And uh, John started crying. And then yeah. I cried with him. And um, I brought him inside. And when we got inside, we turned the corner and there's all my guys with the coat. And then Kenny Speck, one of my team, oh, the yeah. and then John was like a bowl of jelly. And my plan was working because I wanted John to John Stewart this. I didn't want John reading from a prepared statement because six other people were going to read prepared testimonies. And we read all of them. Mm -hmm. We proofread all of them. We told them what to add, what to take out, you know, what's going to pull at someone's heartstrings and tug at their heartstrings. So everybody went in the hearing room in the committee. And then uh, John and I and the others were whisked into another room and we're waiting until we get called out. We go out there. Peter King and Carol Maloney gave statements. And then they had those guys go up. So if you watch the whole thing, me and John are communicating, whether we were talking, leaning over each other, texting. Right. Getting under John's skin, like John, there's nobody here. Look at us. Look at all the people behind you that are sick and dying, and then look in front of you. There's nobody sitting in the seats, or they come in for a minute to get, you know, mm-hmm. their check mark saying they were there. Right. John was getting furious. So as yeah. people started testifying, you're never supposed to make noise in there. You're not supposed to clap. You're not supposed to you right. respect the chambers. Keep it. Keep it quiet. So Lieutenant Michael Connell went, and Mike did a great job. I helped him write his speech. So then right after Mike went, Louis Alvarez went, and oh my God, I was crying like a, you know, like an eighth grade schoolgirl who got dumped by her first yeah. boyfriend. Yeah, I've and, watched um, it. Yeah, it's, it's intense. It's and incredible. And you see me in back, in back of Louis just, yep. and um, as soon as Louis was done, I needed a second to distract. And um, you'll see me in the video stand up before everybody and start giving Louis a standing ovation. Mm. And then everybody follows. Yeah. Which was that easy. Because everyone was feeling it. You just needed one person and you were the one. That's awesome. And then I leaned over to John and I just said, follow that, bitch. <laughs> that was it. That's all I needed. Oh, man. Because he, he's a great writer, I'm sure. he, Like you said, he's one of our best satirical yeah. authors. Yeah. So then um, everybody sat down and John rolled up his feet and he started tapping it like he used to tap the pencil on The Daily Show. Yeah. And he put that speech away and uh, for about eight or nine minutes. Oh, he um what he what he performed mm-hmm. what he did um to listen it was music to my ears but he articulated our pain and suffering he chastised the body of work and mm-hmm. he let america know that there's an issue that should be dear to everybody's hearts and he covered everything in that amount of time and um you know there's that famous picture of me leaning over and hugging john of course um, and he was crying so uncontrollable. And listen, you know, we've had our intimate moments where we've hugged and but he was shaking. And to feel that go through my own body. Yeah. Um, it's one of those moments I remember on my deathbed. Mm. That is an incredible story, John. Oh. But with that being said, um, I was already texting McConnell's office for the meeting. Yeah. And um, a month earlier, we already had a meeting with McConnell's staff. But now mm-hmm. I wanted a meeting with Mitch. And I didn't even, I didn't know if I would get that meeting because um, in 2015, me and Mitch had a really bad meeting. I was escorted to a meeting with Mitch McConnell by four uh, guards with AR-15s. Ooh, so thanks. when I walked, when I walked in there, his brain trust was there, yeah. and I sat down. I said, "Fuck you guys! How how insulting that you guys would escort me and my three guys like we were terrorists." And when McConnell walked in, um, I cursed him from A to Z. 
I'm not, you know. Well, um, if uh, if I can't call you a hero for your work with 9-11, your first responding there, I'm calling you a hero for this. <laughs> yeah. So um, he gave us, they gave us the meeting and two weeks later we had a Incredible. meeting. Yeah. And um, I told my guys, I go, we're either going to talk first or we're going to let him talk first. Mm-hmm. Um, if it goes bad, I'm calling everybody out of the room and I'm staying in there alone with him. Yeah. And we spoke and we went around. I had six guys with me. Three of my guys spoke. And my last guy that spoke, he did a, a hell of a job. And then McConnell went to speak and I said, no, sir, I'm going to go. Mm-hmm. And um, Louis Alvarez gave me his shield, not his badge. Police officers have badges. Yeah. Louis gave me his shield, which is for a detective. Yeah, he's a, he was a bomb detective. And um, Louis wanted me to give his shield to Mitch McConnell. And um, I spoke for about 10 minutes and McConnell tried to cut me off twice. I said, sir, you're going to let me finish because this is 18 years of bent up. Yeah, you're going to listen. Yeah. At, towards the end of that, I took the shield out and I said, sir, Louis Alvarez wanted me to give you this. Um, not as a gift, but as a reminder of your job. Mm. Um, if it was me, you would not get that from me. Yeah. This would go to my mother or, or somebody close to me. Yeah. So when I reached over and I shook his Ooh. hand, I had the shield between his hand and my hand. Oh, my God. And I squeezed it. And I didn't let go. Yeah. I said, "You got to, sir, you got a responsibility. You are a human being. I know there's a human being inside of you. I know it because I could see your eyes are getting glassy. Mm-hmm. I know you want to cry right now. Because yeah. I want to cry right now. And if we cry together, that would be like us cutting our hands and becoming blood brothers. So let's all cry together over Louis Alvarez. Pass- and Louis already passed by then. Right. He passed in, in June of 2019. And then um, he gave us his word that he would get this bill passed before they went on summer recess. So when we went out of there, I said, look, there's a million cameras outside. Mm-hmm. I got to say something. And he said 100, 100%. So when we left, we had to do an impromptu press conference in front of all of those cameras. Which is best Fox, for you and John Stewart and everyone. <laughs> Fox News had to apologize for my saucy language because I said ass and shit. It's with okay. It, said, it was worthwhile. Yeah. And with that being said, we did a press conference. And then two weeks later, the bill went on the floor for a House vote. Yeah. And it was 412 to 10. Exactly. Yep. I, won, I won a dollar bet from uh, Speaker. You know, before. Before the vote, um, we were in the speaker's uh, office. Yeah. And I go, Nancy, you want to bet the over and under? <laughs> no way. And she no goes, way. You, didn't, you did not gamble. <laughs> what? That's- so I said, over 390. And she, oh, that's, a, I didn't know what that means. And I said, yeah, over 390. She goes, I'll take that bet. It's going to be under. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I won a dollar. See, I'm not a gambler either. I have to have friends explain that stuff to me whenever it comes up. So yeah. And then, uh, but that is, that is so cool. You, and you won a dollar from her. You know, it was good to see my guys in the chamber happy to see them yeah. when it come to fruition. Yeah. Um, I stayed in Schumer's office and watched it. And then um, uh, a couple weeks later, it went to the Senate. Yeah. 97 to the two. And in between that, we beat mm. the crap on, out of them on interview after interview after interview. Mm. And then, again, I made sure everybody got into the gallery. Everybody was behaved. Yep. And I went to Schumer's office. And um, Schumer's office is literally about six feet from the gallery, where every time you open the door, I could see in. Okay. I never, I never once, in all of the bills that we passed, went in the gallery to watch it out of the sheer fact that I might have stood up and said something. Right. Um, yeah, that's that's kind of like a library. You know, I went to three state of the unions and I wow. got to sit in that gallery and I know what wow. it means. It's incredible. So to let my guys enjoy that moment and not let me or John take that away from them 
Mm-hmm. You know, when the bill passed the Senate and everybody was walking back and me and John met in the hallway, there was that other hug cry moment, yeah. you know, and then uh, that day, Andrew Giuliani, Rudy's kid, called us from the White House and said, yeah, the president's on the bill. So I said, look, me and your dad don't get along. I'm going to give you my team leader here. You guys work it out because I can't talk to you. <laughs> yeah, but it was done. But it was. Yeah, you know, that's so funny. We go, we go to the White House <laughs> and there. Every, first of all, it was about 100 degrees. I'm yeah. shocked that nobody died. Mm. And they had all of these guys out there waiting. And uh, I don't sweat because yeah. I can control that. And I was dripping. Mm. And Mike Pence comes over. And everybody's like, hey, John, take a picture with the vice president. And me and Mike were like, no, we're good. Because <laughs> me and, Mike, me and uh, the vice president, we had our run-ins. But we were shaking hands and talking mm. out of the side of our mouths. And he's like, I'll have to hear those stories on another. I'll bring you back, maybe. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then uh, the president signed the bill. But here's what happens. The president signs the bill. And I'm standing right next to him because everybody ran up there and they parted the Red Sea for me. Like, well, I, you know, and um, huh. as soon as he signs the bill, he turns around and he gives me his Sharpie and he goes, nobody deserves this more than you. Mm. Because that's a thing where after bills are signed, the pen, the whatever's used for it, the Sharpie is given uh, symbolically to somebody significant that helped get that bill passed. You got the pen on that. So he turns around, gives me it, shakes my hand. And uh, I said, thank you. Yeah. And then I thought that was it. But he's holding my hand and um, he goes, you know, one day you're going to be more famous than me. <laughs> and I said, sir, I, 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 what do you mean? He goes, oh, you and your friend, you're always on TV, meaning John Stewart. Uh-huh. And I said, yeah, but I don't tweet. <laughs> I didn't know what to say. Yeah. And um, now, now I tweet, you know. Um, oh, you're good. Yeah, you got a good, you got a good Twitter feed. <laughs> you know, and I've already been suspended. You know, John Field 1 <laughs> is now John Field 2. And it's because of him, I got That's suspended. John Field 2, gotcha. Um, and, you know, I put the pen, uh, the Sharpie, in a plastic bag. Mm-hmm. I did one interview with NBC News after that. I showed them the pen. Mm-hmm. And uh, two days later, after I got home, the 9-11 Museum came and picked it up. It will be on display one day. Awesome. Um, hopefully they put it with my jacket, right? I mean... Yeah, we'll talk about that in a second. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah that's how it all happened. Oh, my... Unbelievable. I mean, what's really cool about that is the timeline that we talked about, right? John Stewart gives his speech. Louis Alvarez, you give your speeches. Everyone else does. It's June 2019. And then everything that happens afterward, this passes July 2019. It really catalyzed. It really picked up very quickly with these events. And it was everybody involved, not just John Stewart, but that was incredibly significant. Incredible story. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, the lightning handshake, the lightning uh, emotions that you felt. I get that. I've had those moments with friends where it's, you know, at my friend's wedding in January of last year, this electricity where it's like, whoa, this is changing me. Your red bomber jacket, you mentioned it. That was added to the 9-11 Memorial Museum collection. What does this mean to you personally to be added to the 9-11 Memorial Museum? Yeah, you know, um, after 2015, when we got the bill passed, I was going to throw the jacket out. Mm, really? I don't know how the museum even found out, but they contacted me and said, can we have your jacket? I said, what? You sick bastards. <laughs> they're, they're, they're on You it. know, over the years, I had an on and off relationship with the 9-11 Memorial. And uh, we were always trying to get them to build a memorial on the plaza grounds, mm-hmm. which they finally did in 2019, where they unveiled the glades that are dedicated to those who got sick and those who got sick and died. And it took us six years to do that. That's great, though, that it's up. 
Yeah, and you know, and again, me and John sit on the board there. So, but it was a lot of, um, and then for years I beat up the previous president, Joe Daniels, in the media before Alice Greenwald. And then mm. I invited Joe to read the names at my park event on Long Island. Joe That's read nice the gesture. Names, and then Joe read the names of those who died that went on my wall. As soon as he was done, I said, you own this now, Joe. Mm. This is now your responsibility. The park will be here long after I'm gone. I don't know if anybody will be here to maintain it, but I will leave that park to the 9-11 Museum, if need be, to ensure that that park's longevity is intact. Mm. So are are you saying that park is in your ownership? I apologize for, for interjecting. Are you saying that's yours currently? And gotcha. That's, wow, So incredible gesture just for you to even consider that. You know, the 9-11 Responders Remembered Park, um, long story short, was formed in 2008. Mm-hmm. And um, we got that land donated for a dollar. And uh, wow. we built a million dollar park on it. And wow. um, when we first built it, it cost about $500,000. Yeah. And out of that 500000 about almost 200000 came directly from me, not my foundation, me, to wow. ensure that it got completed and to assure that we were on time to open it. And um, you're committed. So somebody- until yeah. somebody pays me that money, that park is mine. <laughs> yeah, well, I consider that kind of park committed to the cause, huh? <laughs> yeah. For a poker you know, team. You know, that park's three minutes from my house. And it's, you know, that's helping fantastic. pass 13 pieces of legislation or donating millions of dollars. That's a great conversation for people to have when I'm gone. Mm-hmm. But the park is something tangible that people could touch and go and visit. And that's what I want my legacy to be that I left behind this for the 9-11 community because more and more people are going to go on that wall. Mm -hmm. And we have about one more event before we go to the other side of the wall, um, 60 foot granite wall, six feet high. So just imagine how many names are on there now. Yeah. I want to be able to see yeah. when we get to the other side. And, you know, you know I'm, I go to that park every day with my dog to walk around, clean it up, make sure it's looking pretty. So um, I'm That's so awesome. proud of that park. I'm glad that you get to. That's an incredible full circle that you got to pay this tribute, that you're able to now enjoy this. And to the names, I think it's 70,000 people as of 2019 were signed up with the World Trade Center. Uh, well, it's 110. 110,000 now. Okay, there you go. So to, to the point of the names. One thing I want to mention too is regarding the museum, there's a few incredible aspects of this. There's all the artifacts that they have that you mentioned, your red bomber jacket. They have the red bandana of Wells Crowther, who is known as the man in the red bandana. He was an equity trader, 24 years old. And he saved several lives just being selfless. Rick Riscorla, the man who saw it coming, he's honored at the 9-11 Memorial, who we mentioned before. He saw the 1993 events. He believed it would happen again. He prepared the Morgan Stanley. I believe it was Morgan Stanley. uh, That company, he trained them just vigorously as VP of security. Some of them were like, this is a little intense. And he was able to save 2,700 lives. But it's countless individuals, people who put on their their military outfits when they heard what happened, ran and just dug through rubble. Uh, you, your teams, it's incredible. I really, really encourage everyone to check this out. Uh, please go to 911memorial.org, 911memorial.org. If you're local and you want to visit, if you want to plan a future trip, they're open. The beautiful thing about um, going to the 9-11 Memorial, mm-hmm. you know, listen, when I go there, I don't go, oh my God, I got to go see my jacket. Yeah. But it's funny because I'll go there and the people that work there, they stop at each artifact and they do their tour guide. Mm. They talk about each thing. And sometimes I'll get 
embedded in the group while that person's talking oh, about man. <laughs> and only a couple of times was I noticed, but a lot of times these people know more about me than me. Oh and I'm gosh. shocked on how much homework they actually do yeah. to make the memorial such a success. Mm. And, um, you know, when I go there, it's a mood change right away. As yeah. soon as you step into the plaza grounds of the 9-11 memorial or go into the museum, uh, there's like a, uh, an eerie feeling I get when I go in there. And, you know, I had to get past, you know what, I got hurt a few hundred feet from here. So that psychological data getting in there and then the feeling is so hard to explain but it's almost like um and I'm, I'm lost for words here but i don't know if anybody else feels it when they go there you know because the place is mostly made up of tourists but when 9-11 responders go there there's this sense of i, I can't again i can't even find the word that it is, just is it like an energy is it a is it a positive or negative that you feel is it like a connect well, I, I don't think it's positive or, or negative i just yeah. think there's something Something running through our body mm. that mm. I can't explain, but um, this kind of like unspoken connectivity to everything that happened is yeah. You know, and um, when I go there though, I feel safe mm. and I and I feel Incredible. protected. That's great. Yeah, you know, and I and I feel so much love. Yeah, it's like it's it, and again, it's not something that normally registers with me. It's just that when I get close to it and I walk in there, it's like wow, mm. wow. And I know, you know, I don't want nine eleven to define my life. I don't want my injury to define me. Mm -hmm. um, I want to be defined by somebody who challenged humanity, somebody who gave it himself, somebody who strived to be better, and somebody who was willing to listen when others wouldn't. I want to change the culture of how we treat each other. And listen, I can tweet with the best of them and I'll go after, yeah. I only go after bullies. I only yeah. go after mean people. I see it, yeah. I crave, I yearn for that calm. You know, we attack each other and point fingers because it's easy to say, I don't like you, I hate you. Your ideas and your words don't fit my narrative. And when you can stop and listen and, and try to understand someone else's ideologies or beliefs, then that starts a conversation. And, you know, it seems now we just want to see who can go the furthest right or the furthest left from the center. Yeah. And at the end of the day, everybody's always drawn back to the center. Exactly. We have more in common than we have less in common. Couldn't agree and more. And we need, we need to stop with the madness and the hate. And when you're so far to the right and so far to the left, you got one ear up against the wall. You come to the middle, you hear both sides. It's really simple. And if we can have these difficult conversations, man... You know, when I first started going to D.C., there was a thing called uh, Blue Dog Democrats and Log Cabin Republicans. Of course. Yeah. Sit in a room with them and to see them. I got to negotiate these bills. Yeah. And I was invited by Schumer or Gillibrand or oh, others man. to be in negotiations and to see them actually have conversations while sipping coffee and eating a donut. It's the highest level of political negotiations in our country and you're seeing Now, it. our federal government is being run on Twitter wars, on who can tweet the fastest or the wittiest. Yeah, Twitter policy is not a good policy already. And trust me, when they do it, I'm first to attack them. And mm. I'm not attacking them to try to be cute or funny. 
Right. I'm attacking them to let them know that they got a responsibility. They got a job. They were voted into office on purpose or on accident or by default. Yep. But Congress and the Senate are promising to fix yesterday's problems today, maybe tomorrow. That doesn't work anymore. We no. have a pandemic and we have a divided country smack down the middle where people feel the hate and they don't even know why. They don't know why they hate. It's either hereditary or the hot girl at the water cooler at the office is a Republican <laughs> or a Democrat and I just want to get laid and I'm going to do whatever she says to me. So <laughs> yeah. man, we are the most informed country in the world yet. We can be so ignorant sometimes. It yeah. makes me nauseous. It well just, said. It, yeah. And it makes me sad because mm-hmm. we are better than this. The data matters. You know, and everybody's like, John, you should run for office. <laughs> And then I'll be like, why would I run for office when I can hold people accountable? Because then I would be part of a system that's broken that myself would not be able to fix. Yeah, I've seen your takes on this. And actually, that's why I specifically didn't want to ask you if you're running for office, because I know. Well, let me say not. Not yet. I wouldn't ever not run for office. Yeah, excuse me. Not yet. It it would have to be the right time uh, on the perfect storm. But I wouldn't mm-hmm. run for office. I would walk for office and I would wear bells and I'd let them know I'm coming. And I'm coming there to change the atmosphere, uh, whether you that. like it or not, whether yeah. you like it or not. Too bad. This is how it's going to be. Yep. Censor me, kick me out, whatever the case may be. Yeah. But America will hear what I have to say. And I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat. I don't care if you're short, black, tall, skinny, fat, Jewish, Muslim. Just don't be an asshole. And then we can move on with our lives. And you know what? My neighbor to the left or right of me, if I'm gay, if I'm transgender, if I'm black, you're not getting cooties. It's that simple. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. My my Lord. We're we're long past that. It's who cares? Like, my thing is kind of like, who cares? You be you. Like, I'm going to love you for you. You be yourself. You do your thing. And I say this. Power to you. And I say this, and I don't, and it pains me to say this because usually when there's a tragedy, people have to die. Mm. This country needs a common enemy. 9 11, we had that common enemy. Yeah. We need another 9 11 event to bring this country together. Why can't the 20th anniversary be that? You know? Yeah, and you know, right if it could be. On 9 12, 2001, when we first got attacked, everybody was in shock. And it was like, oh, oh my God, we're the United States. Mm-hmm. Listen, we got knocked the fuck out. We got one on the chin and we got up and we brushed ourselves off. Yeah. But the American people went from shock to sorrow to anger. But then charity kicked in. And charity, no pun intended, trumped everything. Yeah. And the American spirit kicked in. And we should have bottled that for now because it didn't matter your skin color, your religion, your economic level in life. Everybody came together. I always like when I speak to schools or colleges or middle schools or high schools, I always ask them, what's the single largest act of volunteerism this country's ever seen? And it's the Civil War. Mm. But then I ask them, what's the second largest single act of volunteerism you ever seen? And it's 9-11. Incredible. Yeah. 435 congressional districts in the United States, 433 of them went to ground zero during the cleanup and the recovery. Wow. If we could do that, then why can't we do that again? And God forbid, without another 9-11. But we made this pandemic political. Everything else that's happened is now Republican or Democrat. It's not even Republican or Democrat. It's liberal or conservative. It's it's very strange. The lines of classical political ideologies are kind of breaking with this Twitter sphere that you're talking about. And And again, to hate somebody without reason 
is the most asinine thing I've ever seen. Exactly. Because some of my closest friends, we are so far from the spectrum, mm. whether it's religion or politics. I have and, a few too. Yeah. And we can have a conversation. When you can remove yourself from a religion and believe in God, you're at peace with yourself. Yeah. My chi is right here and doing really good. And my <laughs> trolling skills yeah. are strong because I'm at peace with myself. Because they're with purpose. And it's not really trolling what you're doing because of what you're doing. But I, I get that's just the, the terminology. When you are elected to office or if you're in a position of power to help, mm -hmm. and instead of uniting and helping, you try to divide and incite violence, you have neither a place in society mm -hmm. or a place that voted you in. It's that simple. And again, I use simple words because one, I don't know big words. And two, it's really not that hard to figure this whole thing out. We make everything so hard to explain that if you just oh, yeah. stop, um, you know, a caveman can understand it like me. And well, you know, to your point, to put a, a cap on this, after 9-11, George W. Bush's ratings, his popularity ratings skyrocketed, I think, to the highest ever afterwards because Americans, I'm, I'm a Democrat. I became a Democrat. I was a lifelong independent, became a Democrat last year, full disclosure, uh, but I am about data. My Voting Info HQ project is about trying to provide as much data as possible and I'm going to side with the people who ultimately are about humanity and like you. So I do relate to what you're talking about. The ratings for Bush skyrocketed after because people like me said he's the president. We're backing America. Nothing else matters right now. The second thing I think about is Dick Cheney. He has a heart attack. He's going in for heart surgery. He says to the surgeon, are you a Democrat or Republican? And the surgeon says, today, Mr. Vice President, we're all Republicans. You know, and it's like to say that to Dick Cheney and likely that surgeon was a Democrat, you know, props to the surgeon. And that's what we need more of. Even in the face of Dick Cheney, you know, his life is in your hands and you say, no worries, I got you. Yeah. You know, one of the biggest problems we have is that we label each other. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, you, you know, we just die. You're my friend of glasses. <laughs> yeah. You know, we right. just we're so fast to label each other. Just, yep. you know, I just don't care. I don't I don't. In my small world, mm -hmm. which is really small, I just march to the beat of my own drum and I don't see color and I don't see religion and I don't see politics. I only see right and wrong. Mm -hmm. I only see how you treat people and mm -hmm. you don't treat people right. Then, oh, man, I'm a, I'm a, I could be a dick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all can trust what you're doing. You've taken this this path that chose you. And you've been able to expand it, bringing your upbringing, bringing who you were before 9-11. And now you're able to help, like you said, veterans. You're able to help uh, women's causes. You're able to help people across the board. And it sounds like you are, you know, I think you are doing what you want to do because I'm bringing you on here. I'm some guy from Los Angeles. I have no direct relation to 9-11. Yeah, you know. I really wanted to talk to you and hear your every, story. Every interview is the same. When the anniversary comes the week before and the week after, I can't do every interview. And I give them out to surrogate. Mm. A couple of weeks ago, I was supposed to do an interview. Uh, I was asked to do an interview with a eight o'clock hour on Fox that I declined. I said, mm. no, I'm not going to say the person's name, Tucker Carlson. And um, <laughs> well, thanks for declining it. <laughs> that's rare when I say no to somebody like that, just flat out. No, because yeah. it serves me no purpose to be part of something that's going to further lies and misinformation. Right. 
But when somebody with a podcast or somebody who's doing a school project wants to do an interview, then I find that to be the most humbling thing. And I've been on 60 Minutes and I've been on CNN and I've been on, I've been on all of them. But the ones that mean the most to me are the podcasts or the journalist major from Stony Brook or NYU, who is going to be our future, yeah. going to make a difference, who, yep. has, who has the temperature of the next generation. And to be able to talk to them is more important to me than the anniversary week of 9-11, where I have to say the right things to not only my audience of the 9-11 community, but the American people. This to me is where I get to be me and you you allow me to be me. And, of course. Uh, I'm and- grateful that you are. You are you are bringing it already. I, I'm enjoying everything you're saying. And um, I'm, I'm forgetting that this is being recorded, to be honest. Yeah. Well, have fun <laughs> dissecting that. Yeah, let's uh, let's move forward. Can you explain how the World Trade Center Health Program has benefited you? Yeah, I mean, one, I walked all the Congress to ensure that it was up and running and treating people, right? So I'm kind of a little biased towards it. Of course. Last Monday and tomorrow, I had injections and I'm going to get injections in my knee. I've had nine knee surgeries because of my injury. Those injections helped me every six months. Right. Three weeks before that, I had an injection in my hip because of the way I walked because of my injury. I need a hip replacement. Gotcha. But the World Trade Center Health Program covers all of those. Mm. Even if I had insurance, those are all done because the World Trade Center Health Program said yes. Awesome. My bad feet, bad foot led to bad feet, led to bad knee, led to bad hip. Yeah. And they are now covered. So, yeah. Um you know, when I got out of the hospital after 9-11, I spent 11 weeks in the hospital. And here's what 11 weeks does to you. You get sick and you spend three days in bed. You had the flu. You had a stomach virus. You had a hangover, whatever. Mm-hmm. If you had a hangover for three days, that's a good night. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no kidding. But I went from 185 pounds to 120 pounds. Went into the hospital with Jeez. a crushed foot and left with half a foot missing. Yeah. I was diagnosed by four doctors with post-traumatic. When I got out of the hospital... I didn't go home. I went to my mother's apartment for her to take care of me. I said, man, I got to go to therapy. She goes, yeah, I know. Tomorrow you start therapy for you. I said, no, I have to go to therapy. I need to talk. Yeah. And I did EMDR for two and a half years. If I didn't do EMDR for two and a half years, I might not be here today. I don't say I might not be here today like I'm going to kill myself. Meaning I just mentally or physically would not be able to do what I do now. You wouldn't have the mental bandwidth to go day to day with projects and, that, and everything. That's it. You know, when I was in the hospital, my only job was counting seal and tile, which led to a, um, and um, I'm sharing this now because yeah. uh, I am vulnerable. I count I everything. It. I count yeah. everything. So okay. if I go into a room, I mm-hmm. count the corners in the room. If there's seal and tile, I count the seal and tile. If there's tile on the floor, if you got pens in a cup on your desk, I count everything. You're hyper observant. Yeah. So if somebody was talking to me, I could just blurt out, you got 22 pens in your cup. Now I can control it. But in the beginning, it was like, uh, and I'm not making fun of anybody with Tourette syndrome. It yeah. just, it was, it was numbers Tourette. Yeah. And that was my way of, of, of medicating and self-controlling my thoughts, you know. It was a coping mechanism. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, um, I get that. And I'm not, and I'm not embarrassed to admit it, but physically I've been through the mill. Yeah. I've had so many surgeries course of my injury, but mentally, you know. 187 funerals, countless bedside visits, yeah. or going to someone's house and filling their food uh, refrigerator out with food, and they're embarrassed and they're crying. You know, yesterday morning, I'm sorry, Friday morning, it was around 10:30, and I had a phone call from a uh, retired NYPD ESU. And for those who don't know who ESU are, mm-hmm. 
when you're in trouble, you call 911. Right. When 911 is in trouble, they call ESU. These gotcha. are the best of the best. Okay. And this man has four months to live. And he calls to thank me. Hmm. And I don't usually cry in front of other 911 responders on the phone or anything because I want to help them and get it over. But he had me right. crying. He had me crying. He hmm. had me hysterical crying. And he never cried once. And he said, John, it's going to be all right. And I'm like, what the huh. fuck? Yeah. And um, that got you. He wanted, yeah. He wanted to make sure that he was going to be on my wall. Awesome. That's incredible. Well, John, I mean, you are, you, the strength you exhibit is one of the, it's just incredible. You're one of the strongest people that I, that I've spoken to in a long time, not because of what you've been through, because of the choices you've made because of what you've been through. The choice to go get therapy is so difficult. It is not easy for people to do, especially with everything else considered going on 9-11 wise and otherwise for you. I mean that, so the decisions you made to do that, just the strength should be complimented. It should be, uh, and it, it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to seek help. Oh, absolutely. Ways, you know, I'm um, all for it. I always, when I first started, I knew the Feel Good Foundation or John Feel would have a shelf life. Mm -hmm. I had no idea. I thought it would have been done by now. You didn't even have the name until, uh, until she yeah. slapped the inspiration into you. <laughs> but every time I tried to, 99 Point nine percent of the things that I predicted, whether it was legislation or or this or that in the 9-11, I'm always spot on. Always. Yeah. Numbers, statistics, and again, math I use for everything. Right. But every time I try to predict my shelf life, I seem, you know, I'm like that um, spoiled milk now that <laughs> expired, you know, and when when am I going to throw that milk out? Because, you know, was it 2010 when we got the bill passed, 2015 when we got the bill, 2019, and mm -hmm. now we're doing another bill. Is it 2022? Is it 2025? Do I run for count? And I know I'm not done. Yeah. And it's not like I always try to outdo myself, but subconsciously I'm trying to outdo myself because I don't want to be yeah. content. I don't want to rest on what I've done because mm -hmm. like, with time, they become like today, a conversation where we're sharing stories. I want to be able to do something that immediately is going to impact thousands of lives that are going to help people carry on to the next day. It's that simple. I want somebody who's going to be able to get help that the next day they're better off because I did something. And that's yeah. what I try for. And, and you are. And it's incredible because it's that thing of that spark creating the fire. The spark that you have created has created monuments. It's created, it's put people's names. So I'm doing a John Lewis for kind of a separate thing with the podcast. I'm covering him and profiling him. And he talks about all these names, all these incredible civil rights names. And he says, it's the hundreds of thousands of names that aren't known that made the difference, that got this done, and who should be on plaques all around the country. And you have that same mentality, and it's it's incredible. The first time I met him. What? what? The okay. first time, well, I met every member of Congress, right? That's right. I mean, That's right. Every, you know, we had 1,800 plus meetings. They did their homework before we went in their office. And a lot of times, 25% of the time, you actually meet with the senator or the congressman. You can eat, you'll meet with their legislative directors. You'll meet with their chief of staffs okay. or their legal teams. John Lewis wanted to meet with us. Congressman or a senator is as good as their staff. That's fact in D.C. Okay. If you got okay. a shitty staff, you're a shitty member of Congress or the Senate. Hmm. John's team of people that he had in his office were phenomenal. They brought us in. We were about in the lobby for about 30 seconds and they took us in his office and we waited there for about a minute. There's about eight or nine of us and we're waiting and he walks in there and he walks around the room. He goes, where's good trouble? Oh. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, you good trouble. Come here. Come here. He called you good trouble. And he, 
And I go to what? extend his hand, and he goes, "No, nah, man, come, give me that hug." Oh man, yeah. And um, the sincerity. Uh, yeah. What DC doesn't allow you to witness is some of them, and it's only a handful, are so sincere and so authentic. Mm. He was one of them that makes your hair stand up, mm. gives yeah. you chills. Yeah. And if you know his history, to get, yeah. to be even when I met John, you know, in 2010, John Stewart asked me to come on a show, and I said no. I didn't even hesitate. But the reason yeah. I said no is because I was going to D.C. the next day. And, you know, um, gotcha. I'll get to that in a second. OK. But it's people like John Stewart and John Lewis and, and even Barack Obama, who to this day is the best orator this country has ever had. Ever. Ever. Agreed. The second best. The second best orator is Michelle Obama. <laughs> it's, it's actually true. The third best orator might be JFK. Because everybody else, but you got to go back away. So yeah, <laughs> there are very few who are authentic. Like a yeah. Senator Gillibrand, our friendship runs deeper than politics. That's incredible. That yeah. it's that is that connection. But sitting there talking to John Lewis, yeah, and knowing that in 1960 he's arrested, that he's cracked over the head and is still walking with a fractured skull. Exactly. Not reacting. That he's he not that yeah. he's not giving the pro listen if somebody cracked me over the head yeah. i'm sorry i'm gonna turn around and open a can to be able to have these conversations and dialogue with these people mind blowing you know um about two months ago spike lee's people call me and i've always been a fan of spike lee yeah of course so i first get an email and i thought it was a really like a funky email say mm-hmm. hey mr field this is so-and-so from spike lee's team spike's doing a documentary he'd like to film oh. you what the heck Okay. So I forward it, I forward it to John and I like, John, did you hear anything about this? He's like, no. Mm. Then, you know, a week later, John's agent um, said, Hey, Spike Lee's people are going to uh, contact you. I said, yeah, they already did. And John didn't know. <laughs> yeah. So um, I went to uh, Spike's building in Brooklyn and the way we're talking right now, Spike, mm-hmm. let me go. Spike, let me go for an hour. And Man. Spike's doing a documentary for the 20 year anniversary for HBO, which really? was originally yeah. was originally supposed to be a two hour doc is now mm-hmm. a four part series. Excellent. And he's um, great. At, he's going to be great with that. Wow. And then two weeks ago, John actually went there and filmed and I rubbed it in him. I go, you know, I filmed first with Spike. I actually got a, a street sign from Spike. Do the right thing. 30 year anniversary. No way. Yeah. yeah. And it was it was like right around my birthday in November. And um, Spike's like, yeah, it's your birthday, isn't it? I go, yeah, we, we do all homework. So, yeah. but oh, my gosh. He's a lot like John. They're very humble. They're very shy. They're very low key. They're low maintenance. Mm-hmm. But I got to walk around this four story building. History. It's it was it was, it reminded me of talking to John Lewis because mm. the art of the African art and the history of the black men and women in his building was yeah phenomenal. And then to see the autographs and signed movie posters, you name it, Denzel Washington to Kirk Douglas to Chris Rock to the biggest star, and it wasn't just in the hallways. It was in the the stairwells. It was in the <laughs> just, bathroom, dude. It was in the bathrooms, <laughs> like that man. That's incredible. And, and, and I'm uh, I'm I'm looking at a movie poster. Do the right thing. Signed yeah. by you know. And I was like, wow. I just keep thinking that, of Radio Rahim. <laughs> yeah, but to see that kind of history yeah. um, and to be able to be part of something like that, you know. Yeah. I probably had, and I'm not even counting the legislation that we passed. I've had about five or six wow moments. And I don't have many of them where I could say, wow, that made me smile or that made me happy that's because cool. that's just not an emotion I really enjoy or share anymore. Right. You like the benevolence. That's what that's where you find your joy. It seems I wouldn't say I'm an envious or jealous type of person, but the Spike Lee's and the John Stewart's or the John Lewis's. Yeah. 
the way they give it themselves, the way that they, you know, they all in their own ways, John Lewis suffered mm-hmm. to make sure that we have a, you know, equality today. Yep. You know, when I met John Stewart, I didn't know what to expect because he calls me and he's like, you're going to come on my show tonight. We're going to make fun of the Republicans. We're going to help you get a bill passed. I said, sir, I can't <laughs> come on your show. He said, what do you mean you can't come on my show? <laughs> And I said, sorry, I got to finish what I started. But if I ever write a book, I'd love to come on your show. It'll awesome. be too late by then. Give me four <laughs> guys. You're worth four guys, I assume. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll put them on my show. And uh, you go to D.C., do what you got to do, because you're a man of integrity. I like that. Oh, and then I remember that show. And then, yeah. he watched The Daily Show. I, I remember that exact show when he brought on the four first responders. That You, you coordinated that. Yeah. So oh, then. Um, wow. Five years later, yeah. when we were trying to get the bill passed in D.C., two of the guys died. One was a war missing because it was post-traumatic. And we just put Kenny mm-hmm. Speck on there with three empty seats. And um, oh, man. John talked to Trevor yeah. and they agreed to it. I said, this would be really powerful. You just leave those. And um, it helped yeah. us, you know. Listen, 90% of the things that he does, I should take credit for anyway because, you know, I'm smarter than him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're clearly the catalyst here. Obviously. <laughs> Actually, I've never met anybody as smart and quick-witted who can go from serious to funny. And mm-hmm. I mean, on the truck, you know, listen, that uh, that rover that we sent to Mars was going about, what, 12,000 miles per hour? Jeez. And stopped yeah. in under seven minutes to zero miles per hour? On a dime. On a dime. That's what John yeah. Stewart does. John Stewart can go from serious to funny. Yep. Um, I've never seen anything, you know. People always say, I don't know, like, for me, if I'm being serious or funny, mm-hmm. I just just think it's my flawed attempt at being funny. Um, (laughs) But I've never met anybody with that kind of gift. And I think that's what separates him from everybody. And I've had a chance to meet a lot of celebrities, every elected official. Mm -hmm. And um, other than Barack Obama, uh, John Stewart, Spike Lee. Yeah, John um, Lewis. I mean, the class that you're putting these people in, it's really... Yeah. You know, dude, I was was walking the halls of Congress when Storm Thurmond was still a senator. Yikes. Yeah. Being pushed down a hallway in a wheelchair with a blanket over him. Jeez. And he's he's the one who said that he would uh, die uh, fighting against integration, fighting against uh, the end of segregation. But, you know, kudos to Storm. Like side uh, of history. Kudos <laughs> to Storm. Towards his uh, later days in life, he did accept, you know, responsibility. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, damage done. But it's better that he spoke up. Uh, he can't be propped up perpetually as the face of, you know, it can show, hey, people change, you know, so we can say that to the modern conservative party and for liberals as necessary too. You know, I I hope others accountable just as much. I want to just mention to anyone listening, uh, to anyone that was involved in 9-11 first responder efforts, if they have not reached out to the WTC health program that you mentioned that you have said is so incredible that did a lot of help for you and others, please refer anyone you know that was involved in 9-11 first responder efforts that has not reached out to cdc.gov slash WTC. And they have everything on there. It's it's really simple, streamlined, just in case. I'm sure at this point, most people know, but just in case even one person uh, hears that. And, you know, I'm a contractor of the World Trade Center Health Program. The World Trade Center Health Program is administrated by NIOSH, uh, the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health. Gotcha. But it, the DOJ, Department of Justice, administrates the VCF. But I'm a contractor of NIOSH, and I have, I have crisscrossed the country and speaking to fire departments, FEMA teams, mm-hmm. uh, those who volunteer from different 
stage to go to Ground Zero or the Pentagon. We go to the Pentagon literally up until when the pandemic started this year. We're yeah. doing five events per year all over the country. Now we have to do things by Zoom. But the contract enabled me to take retired cops and give them jobs because they can no longer do their job. So while I am the spokesperson or whatever, yeah. I don't draw a paycheck from it, but it allows them to get a paycheck. So the Feel Good Foundation is yeah. separated by the Feel Good Foundation outreach. And nice. they, every day, are putting people in the pro Pound for pound, nobody's oh. put more people in the World Trade Center program than us. Unbelievable. Yeah. This is part of your legacy that you wanted. And, and John did a video with me a couple of years ago to put people in the program. That's awesome. So, and so, it's not um, just these people, but their families. They're going to be positively impacted from this for generations to come. You're uplifting communities through this. Like, this is incredible. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, listen, if you were there, if you were in lower Manhattan, whether you worked there, went to school there, lived there, or, or visiting there, or worked on the pile, mm -hmm. if you were south of Canal Street, then you should be in the World Trade Center Health Program, even if you're not sick. Just get enrolled now. Go yeah. for a yearly yeah. physical. Because even though you're not now, you have about a 58% chance higher risk of getting sick than somebody who wasn't there. So it will be protecting your future and your family. It's that simple. Well said. And you know, talking about uh, all this health stuff, I want to talk about a really interesting story, another incredible thing you did speaks to you, John, the giver. You donated a kidney in 2007. Yeah. If it's okay to mention him, Paul Grossfield found yeah. Feel Good Foundation and reached out. You donated a kidney to patient one, whose husband donated a kidney to patient two. A friend or relative of patient two donates a kidney to patient three. Then patient three's friend or relative donates a kidney to Paul Grossfield. What brought you to step up for Paul? Yeah. So, so back in 2006, I got an email and I get about uh, two or 300 emails a day. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes more. And the email was, uh, my name is Paul. I'm dying. I need a kidney. I want to see my kid grow up, go to his prom, get married, graduate college. And um, can you put my story on your website? And I emailed him back in under five minutes. And um, I said, no, I can't put you on my website. It's not what it's about, but you can have my kidney. Wow. And um, he emails me back and he said, fuck you. I can't <laughs> believe you would be so callous and rude and joke around that you would give your kidney. I was like, Paul, you don't know me. I don't know you but you can have my kidney. Yeah. After several days of exchanging emails, he emails me and says, I made an appointment at Columbian Presbyterian. Um, I said, okay, I'll meet you there. Wow. Dude, I am never late for anything. <laughs> and I was late for this one. Um, I sat in traffic. <laughs> If you don't know New York traffic on the, uh, yeah. on, oh my God, get into Columbia. I've heard about it. <laughs> so um, he's texting me. He's calling me. I was like, Paul, he's like, fuck you. You're not coming. I knew you weren't going to come. So I finally get there. Yeah. And it was supposed to be a lovey hubby, you know, kind of like a, a handshake because he was getting under my skin. <laughs> yeah. I went through a series of tests. Yeah. And we were a match, which was the most mind blowing thing. Right. That's not necessarily common. That's, but we yeah. weren't a hundred percent match. Oh, okay. Right. So this you could be a match and then that person's gonna take more medication. Or you could be a hundred percent match and they're gonna take less medication. There's a chance yeah. that he could reject me too. Right. I got to go through more tests. I got to pass a psychological test too, which I didn't know if I would pass because I was diagnosed by four doctors with post-traumatic. I wound up okay. passing. And nice. um, the woman who administrated that test, yeah. she looked like Cloris Leachman. Oh, okay. I, she was about five foot ten and yep, she I had a that. really angry German accent. Oh, man. <laughs> From like Crazy Saddles or something. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay, okay. But I passed. So, awesome. But Paul wasn't ready because he had other health conditions. And mm. until he was uh, caught up and better, he couldn't get my kidney anyway. Gotcha. So as a couple months went by, the hospital was like, hey, John, if you gave your kidney to somebody else, 
we'll make sure Paul gets a better one. So I said, wait, I get to help two people then. Because I'm not just helping Paul, I'm helping somebody else. This is a dream scenario. And and the hospital's like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, as a donor. And I said, okay, I'll do it. And the hospital's like, yeah, but we have a problem. We already told Paul. And he said, no. He goes, no, Paul wants your kidney. The hospital makes me call Paul. I go, Paul, Mm -hmm. my kidney's not going to make you walk on water. If you can get a better kidney, don't be stupid. Yeah, take the better kidney. You came to me because you wanted to see your kid grow up. Right. What the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah. So I kind of semi-talked him into it. Okay, good. He's still not ready. Uh-huh. So then the hospital's like, hey, listen, Paul's almost ready. John Hopkins has already done this a couple of times. We want to do it because we've never done it. We want to do a six-person swap. What is that? And how does it work? And how many pieces of my kidney am I giving up? <laughs> right. And they're like, no, no, no. You give like the way you explained it. And um, yeah. I said, in essence, I'd be helping three people, right? Because this can't be done without me. Yeah. And they're like, yes, you would be helping three people live. Unreal. And I said, I'm in. Yeah. So I'm, and they're like, <laughs> yeah. well, Paul is giving us a hard time. So I call Paul. I go, Paul, what the fuck? I've been, this is like a year going on now, back and forth. We're really close. And yeah. then everybody got on board. And then yeah. on August 30th, 2007, I did it. Nice. And you know, the biggest side effect to donating your kidney is fluctuating. Really? Yeah. Yeah, see, well, things I wouldn't know. So they take it out from underneath your belly button now, whereas years um... ago, they so they fill you full of air. So they want you up. The you know the the donor is in a lot better shape than the recipient. Right. And people are just right. walking up and down the hallway farting. <laughs> oh man, which is a sign that kidneys are being given. Yeah, but you know I caught a lot of flack from my family and friends. Why would you do this? You know. Yeah. You know, and if you hesitate, you know, I live by this. Mm. No matter what I do. I don't react to anything. I respond to it. A lot of times people react. It's usually an emotional reaction or knee-jerk reaction. And their best judgment's not always used. But if you can process information and respond to it, yeah. you make a better call or your decision-making is that much easier. So when Paul asked, you know, when Paul got mad at me, I respond to it. I don't want, I don't like being called a liar, a cursed at. And I wanted to show him, because this wasn't about giving my kidney away. This was to let him know this is the type of person I am. Yeah. Don't question it because there I'm going to people like you out there because I'll give you my kidney, but I'll also give you one upside the head because <laughs> yes. you reach yeah. out to me. I didn't reach out to you. Yep. And when I did it, I also knew that it would help raise awareness because 9-11 responders had so many kidney issues. And, right. you know, since I donated that kidney, I've helped get about 15, 16 people kidneys now. That yeah. story actually was a real catalyst, the fire creating the spark that does more. But as I uh, retired firefighter living on Long Island named Danny Shea and, um, yeah. I'll take their stories and I'll get the media, the local news or social media to tell their stories. Mm. And, you know, the the Shea family, which is a nice Irish family, uh, they literally adopted me. And they think I saved their son's life, but I didn't. The person that gave him the kidney did. I just helped share the story. Still um, amazing. What a what a great connection. And, and for that, to just incredible. There are people like you out there. There are people who are gracious, who are not the cynics, who are not. Uh, it's just his reaction of, why are you making in front of me. I mean, that's almost a normal reaction given modernity, given modern times. I'll go back to 9-11. I'll go back to my injury. I'll go back to donating a kidney. I'll go back to getting legislation passed. None of that defines me. None of that defines me. It's my mother. It's always been my mother. It will always be my mother who, you know, 
my wrestling coach's son, his middle name is John, mm. and he was born with Down syndrome. Yeah. And when I was a senior in high school, we raised a whole lot of money. And at that time, I think it was like 17000 which today That's... on a GoFundMe would probably be like $170 bazillion. Yeah. yeah, it's great money. You know, and my wrestling coach is like a father to me, you know, that I filled my void. Yeah. And I've always been like this. I got hurt at 9-11. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, like ground zero, and I got hurt. Mm-hmm. And it just gave me the chance to show everybody I'm vulnerable, I'm human, I bleed, I cry, and you can still do really cool fucking stuff. Exactly. Just like you said, it's not your definition. You know, uh, speaking of that, let's talk about your primary career uh, before you became an activist. So (laughs) construction, you were an expert in demolitions. How does John feel? How do you get into becoming a, a demolitions expert? What was that about? Yeah, um, let's go back to my senior year in high school. I get hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, I lose a wrestling scholarship. I was going to be an English major. Okay. But at 17 years old, because I graduated early, I joined the army and I had to get my parents' signature. My mother cried. My father said I wasn't worthy and he didn't want to sign it, but he eventually did. I graduated top four in my class in basic training. I get to choose and pick where I want to go. On graduation day, there's a two-mile run. I win it. And then I chose to go to the 101st Airborne. Okay. I wouldn't suggest anybody join the military for a career, but those who do it, God bless you. Yeah. Thank you for your service and your sacrifice. Second that. But I recommend it. If you want to grow up and you want to become a man, join the military. Mm. I was 17 years old and I thought I was that cool. Right. And when I was in high school, I was the man and I was no longer the man. Right. <laughs> you were you were an army of one at that point. Yeah. And um, I grew up really fast. When I got out, I didn't know what to do. So mm. went into the construction field. And, That's you know, whatever job I ever took, I was always management. I was always in charge of, always had a lot of responsibility. I went into the demolition field. And when 9-11 happened, by that time, I was good at what I did. I can operate any machine. I can remove anything from a pile and not destroy the integrity of the do- um, yeah. of that pile and the moving debris. Yeah. Um, I, know, I know how buildings fall down. I know how they implode. Whatever the case may be. Right. And I didn't want to go there. But at the time, of a company of about 200 people and five foremen, I was the only one not married, no kids, and I was in the military. So they thought, hey, let's send John. <laughs> <laughs> well, geez. Okay, so I was wondering. I, I looked it up and I didn't see... Uh anything immediately that you had served. So thanks for mentioning that. I'm trying to paint like a full picture of you beyond like you're talking about, beyond yeah. 11, beyond what we know about you from the stories from the, yeah. and I wait for the book. Sharing. No, you know what? Everybody keeps saying, write a book, write a book, write a yeah. book. I always think like pretentious people write books because <laughs> they want that kind of attention. Maybe. Kinda, also, also great writers do. So maybe you'll be a, the second. But, you know, I kind of get that gooey, uncomfortable, embarrassing feeling when attention is drawn to me. If I ever write a book, again, my tattoo, there was our story to tell. That would yeah. be the title of it. Mm-hmm. And it would go backwards be from good. present time to 9-11. But I would have other oh. people who would tell the story that traveled with me and their families that lost their loved ones, like Ray Pfeiffer or Louis Alvarez. Like an anthology, in a way, covering chronicles of everyone. A story about you would be about others, of course, because that's who you are. But I could not draw that kind of attention to myself because, um, listen, I drove the bus. I know that. I'm not stupid. I might be the leader of a boy band, but everybody I bought with me, like Ray and Lou and Mike O'Connell and Rich Palmer and Kenny Smith, they have their own following and they deserve all the credit in the world. And America doesn't know about them. And they should. We should. Yeah. We need to remember them. And that's another reason I wanted to mention some of their names here. This is literally the best thing that's happened since 9-11 to me. Mm. And it's um, yeah. it's a journey. And it's a journey when I don't know when it's going to end, nor do you know when your journey is going to end. Exactly. But the best thing to happen to me since 9-11 was the friendships. 
whether it's with John Stewart. And uh, listen, Spike Lee's a friend, but he's not John Stewart because me and John are close. Yeah. But I had my small circle of childhood friends. And when I say small, it's small. There's only a handful of them. And one is a scientist trying to find a cure for cancer. He looks like Robin Williams, but he's the biggest drunk in the world. <laughs> the other one owns seven eye house. Wow. And the other two are brothers. One's a retired uh, lieutenant colonel uh, doctor. Mm just retired from the military and his brother's an engineer and then there's me good company all good company yeah and all of them with extensive brilliant minds in college and then there's me but yet they all find me to be the most interesting which i still to this day i had to do a lot of apologizing to them because after 9 11 when i was in the hospital for 11 weeks i didn't want to be bothered by anybody nobody was allowed in my hospital room right it created you know i was embarrassed Um, some distance some yeah yeah and then what's happened since then, my childhood best friends are now friends with my 9-11 best friends. And there gotcha. there's a rule mm-hmm. that we live by now. And if they want to be in that circle, I'll give you a perfect example. Lieutenant Michael Connell. I didn't meet him until 2015. Mm-hmm. But he is now one of my best friends. Ray Pfeiffer, who passed away in 2017, is one of my friends. Yeah. We no longer, when we're together in person, which is rare now because of the pandemic, but once in a while, or whether we're on Zoom or whether we're on the phone, we don't say goodbye. We say, I love you. Yeah. They want to be my friend. They have to say, I love you. And that is the best thing that's happened to me because that means more to me than any piece of legislation or anything I've done is the friendships. That means I've done something right where somebody actually wants to be friends with me. (laughs) Right. that up really quick the person who you are when you wake up the person who you are when you lay down and go to sleep they respect and know and understand that person they see who they see you for who you are when you take a step back they understand when you take two steps forward they they respect it you know um, a friend or two that i say i love you too when we end calls similar stuff different things we've been through it's like no you never know sure yeah incredible sorry i i interject a lot i'm trying to like build a good dialogue so i'm sorry i i'm jumpy <laughs> um you know if you if you want to cap this off let's talk about the no responders Left behind uh, documentary upcoming that is so embarrassing <laughs> you, really you, the canadian crew that filmed that i love them um mm-hmm. i talk to them all the time I, they even made a blooper reel because every they they were with me for like two weeks in my house and they followed me everywhere that had to be weird, so, huh? <laughs> every day I said, fuck you, Canada. You know, and then they just, they, after this is all over with, they sent me a, a, a video of me saying, oh, uh, which was the funniest thing I've ever That's saw. That's great. But, um, That's so good. <laughs> you know, they sold that documentary to Blue Ant Media and Discovery Channel. And it will air sometime this year. My awesome. guess is somewhere around the anniversary. Excellent. Excellent. I'll look out for it. But after seeing it, I offered suggestions to them where it wasn't so John heavy because John Field I mean, or John Stewart? Both. Both. Okay, got it. And I know it, it it centers around me and John. I mean, listen, John could have 30 seconds in it. It's going to center around John Stewart. Right. You know? Right. He'll be the star uh, if he's 30 seconds in there. Yeah. But it centers around me and it's embarrassing because, again, that kind of attention. Um, and I made it clear it's these guys and women that I, you know, what your listeners need to know is that those trips to DC was so much harder than actually having the meetings in DC. You know, Rich Palmer, my number one lieutenant, yeah. who was my number one team leader, who was in charge of the other team leaders, who were in charge of the guys, everything was broken down and structured. We were a well oiled machine. And for primitive people like us, we, we took this serious. If we were leaving DC on June 1st, 
the next day, me and Rich were planning the next trip, getting the hotel, getting a, a space where we could feed 20, 30, 40, 50 people. Mm-hmm. Then getting a hotel that can accommodate that many people. Then making sure that if you didn't have a ride, we're going to meet here, we're going to meet there. There was a lot of planning. Then when we had the meeting the night before, we walked the halls of Congress. Yeah. And then by the time in 2015 to 2019, we let the Capitol Police know where we were and they would escort us to the Hill. Mm. They became our friends. That's incredible. And, you know, they would get Feel Good Foundation t-shirts and sweatshirts and <laughs> nice. all the guys were from there, NYPD and FDMY shirts. Yeah. But they would escort us with motorcycles and cars and we'd be going through lights at the Capitol, you know, like we were dignitary. Yeah. Or some kind of celebrity royalty, like to, very, to, very cool. From the time we left to the time we got there. And then on average, we walked anywhere from nine to 13 miles a day on the hard floors of marble in the, in the Congress, um, going from meeting to meeting. Yeah. And we had 55 meetings in one day. That's, that was our record. Usually we <laughs> average anywhere from 15 to 30. 55 in a day. Wow. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. These meetings would last anywhere from 15 minutes to a half an hour. Yeah. And my teams are broken down into my A team. My A team was my best guys. Um, mm-hmm. But they got the fewest co-sponsors. They got the fewest yes votes. And they were going to meetings with people who were animately against us. Uh, my B team was go there for people that were on the fence. Mm. Then I had my C team. And they were the ones who took the fluff meetings that they got the most co-sponsors, the right. most yes votes. Yeah, the, the soft. Uh... Yeah. Then I took meetings by myself with, you know, break glass in case of emergency. Right. Okay. These were meetings with actual members when we were behind closed doors. Like, look, I don't give a shit what your title is. I'm going to make your life fucking miserable. Exactly. Right. When it's one-on-one, it's real talk. It's let's yeah. all the and, Let's call the bullshit um, and get to it. And then, you know, we had a plan accordingly when, you know, I love John Stewart to death. And John wouldn't even be mad I said this. John made six trips to Washington, D.C. in 10 years. Nine years. You know, people think he went 100 times. He did. He went six times. But those six times, we had a plan accordingly because we knew it would be a circus. We knew it would just be crazy. And then all my guys... Well, my guys all of a sudden think they want to be in the A team. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you said uh, that Congress members are only as good as their staff. Sure. It sounds like with activists, with uh, lobbyists, in a sense, sounds like that's true, too. Having your A team, having your B team, but even your C team being full of people you trust and can rely on. Yeah. But, you know, when we were scheduling meetings, if we had four 11 o'clock meetings, I had to break the teams down into sub teams. Mm. And then, you know, (laughs) and then. There's six buildings. You got three on the House side and three on the uh, Senate side. So a lot of times we would break them down even to smaller teams. Yeah. So it can make it look like we were a lot of people. Right. right? So um, optics, of the mind kind of thing. Optics was a lot because yep. members would call other members. And say, yeah, they're here again. Yeah, you know? they're everywhere. They're everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And again, um, uh, I knew how to outthink them. I knew how to outwork them and I knew how yeah. to outplay them. And if you go back to, you know, an interview that's four or five minutes is an interview that's four or five minutes. But in print or with a quick camera, sound bites work the best. Yep. You know, and it gives the media something that want more. So easily shareable. You can hear directly from the person. There's more emotion. And it was hear. always the sound bites that seemed to get us, you know, to the next right. level. Or when John did his thing, yeah, you know, or I said something for shock and awe. Right. Well, you know, people are like, oh, I can't believe he cursed or I can't believe he did this. I did that for shock value. Yeah, it was premeditated. That bomb. <laughs> Everything was planned. Y'all were tactical about this. This is made for this. What, what is what is that exactly? What letter is that? That's that's an F. And what is that? That looks like uh, I don't know. Oh, 
An old-fashioned bomb. Okay, I didn't. I didn't want to guess. That's what it is. So that's like a metal bomb. It looks like a, a giant ball bearing with like a a camp yeah. a, a metal wicker out of it. Yeah. So it's called an F bomb, right? Yeah, an F bomb. Oh wow! How did I miss it? How did I miss it? <laughs> but <laughs> oh, here's, the, here's, the, here's the history behind that piece of metal. Yeah. There's an artist who takes steel parts from World War II and he oh, melts them down. Right. And he melts them down and he makes objects out of them. Yeah. So he saw me on TV one day. Oh, man. And he reached out to me out of nowhere. Yeah. And he's like, I, I wanted you to have this. And there's a nice letter with it. Yeah. <laughs> that is that is so cool. Uh, so, John, we're nearing the end. I only yeah. said this for two hours. I could talk to you for another hour. I could go on and on. Um, maybe we can talk again in the future before sure. you're too busy, before the, the bigger media gets you. Um, thank you for being gracious with your time. Thank you for everything you do, for everything you do for others, for everything, for pushing the energy away from you. But really, you are doing big things. You, John Feel, are are doing great work. Thank you. And I really hope any night- Trust me, I'm, I'm more thankful than you are. Hey, well, it's, it, like we said, it's about the bigger, the bigger picture. It's about everyone, whether they agree with us or not, we're in this thing together. And it can raise the quality of life if we look out for each other a little more. I appreciate that. Hey, well, thank you so much, John. Thank you for your time. This was great. I laughed. I learned. Uh, I mean, it's just, this was meaningful. Thank you. Um, and I wish you the best. And I hope we talk soon. Thank you, sir. That was such a good interview. Thank you, John Feel, for your time. I think one of my favorite parts was how you told the story that you go to the 9-11 Museum and you kind of uh, kind of sneak in in disguise to the crowds and you hear stories even about yourself and you're amazed that the tour guides know more about you. You know, that kind of reminds me of Captain America in, uh, I forget which movie it is, but he's walking around like the museum and he hears uh, everyone talking about him and one kid there notices who he is. The stories with Spike Lee, the John Stewart stories were amazing. I watched The Daily Show religiously growing up. That was probably the only TV show that I've ever felt was appointment television. You can follow me, Kedro, at Voting Info HQ, and follow the show at The Resist Pod. So again, can't say it enough. Thank you, John Field. Thank you, Ray Pfeiffer. Thank you, Louis Alvarez. Thank you, Mike O'Connell. Thank you, Rich Palmer. Thank you, Kenny Smith. Thank you to all the first responders. Thank you to everyone involved. Thank you for listening. Keep on resisting. If you enjoyed listening to the show, please support us at patreon.com slash votinginfohq.